G'day and welcome to the Drive Able podcast where we discuss all things about driving and safer community transport for people with disabilities and medical conditions. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on our socials. Just search for Drive Able Podcast. We have heaps of content now and interviews are continuing almost every week. So go back and listen to our old episodes. This is another exciting episode. Hey, everybody. In this episode, we speak with Brian Fitzpatrick. So Brian has a really interesting story. Um, I actually know Brian uh, personally as well. He's got a condition that has progressed over the years, and he's had to basically adapt his life and aids to suit, including his car. So that's going to be really interesting to understand, I guess, when those points have been and how he processed them. He's also old school. He's been around well before the NDIS days. Um, so he's got a lot of perspective of before and after. And on top of that, he's also the national sales manager for Mobility Plus, who's a, in Melbourne, who's a local wheelchair manufacturer, and they're also a vehicle modifier. So he's so got all about. the angles of what we're going to be needing, you know. Um, I'm sure he's going to have a lot of info, a lot of content, a lot of great value for us. Um, so, yeah, what do you reckon, Brad? Oh, this is going to be a good one. He's got so much to share, so let's get him on. Let's get in. Driving is something many take for granted, but when someone has altered ability, then driving or getting out and about in your own car can be challenging. Driving with a disability doesn't mean you have to drive an old clapped out car with farm-like machinery, and relying on a wheelchair doesn't mean waiting for hours and then being in the back of a maxi access cab getting car sick. The Drivable podcast is designed to introduce and explore driving aids for people with disabilities vehicle modifications, the NDIS, research, medical guidelines, driving techniques, and much, much more. The Drivable podcast is to help you be informed and be in control of your own independence so you can experience freedom through driving safely and reliably. I'm Ali, and with me is Brad, and together we have over 30 years of experience in disability and driving. Enough of the intros, let's get into it. Okay, in this episode, we are talking with Brian Fitzpatrick. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Let's kick off first by introducing uh, yourself and telling us a little bit about your disability, what it actually is, and um, we can go from there. All right, thanks, Ali. Thanks, Brad. Pleasure to be here this morning as part of um, your, your video sessions. Um, so I'd hate to admit it, but um, 59 years ago, I was diagnosed at birth with the condition called spina bifida. Um, it was quite prominent um, back around that era. Um, there are less babies now being born today with spina bifida because of the um, females taking folate in the first trimester. Um, they're finding that that reduces the risk of um, yeah, having babies with um, spina bifida. So essentially um, spina bifida is um, what they call a, um, a neural tube defect. Whereas in that um, three, um, the first semester, um, that yeah, the spine and spinal cord doesn't form properly. Um, so most um, people with spinal bifida are born into a wheelchair um, because their paralysis is um, directly affected. Um, they can also have um, bowel, bladder issues and things like that. Worst case scenario also is um, they can have um, what they call hydrocephalus, which is uh, water on the brain, um, where a, um, a shunt is inserted into the brain to drain that excess fluid away. So um, fortunately, I didn't have hydrocephalus. Um, I have a very, um, what you would call a mild case of spina bifida in, uh, in that regard. So 
actually, I wasn't born into a wheelchair, um, whilst diagnosed at birth with the condition, um, I didn't have any symptoms at all. Um, so my condition was quite rare compared to other people with, uh, with spinal bifida. So, um, so whilst being diagnosed at birth, it wasn't, I had the lump on my back, um, which is quite common. And that was removed surgically when I was 12 months old. Um, but it was done more for cosmetic reasons than anything else in that there was just this lump about the size of my fist um, on the base of my spine. So spinal bifida is around the L4, L5 area. So it's quite low. Um, hence why it's more um, legs, bladder, um, bowel, not certainly not upper body. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, 12 months old, it was removed. Um, and then I, you know, lived a normal childhood, went to a mainstream school, played, played sports, did all the usual stuff, could run, could do all it, do the whole lot. Okay. Um, at the age of 12, like most kids, I had a, um, a growth spurt. And because I had that spinal cord defect, um, the spinal cord became tethered. Mm. So I lost the sensory feeling from uh, my knees down. Um, and I was starting to get pain in my calves and things like that. So I was having regular visits to the children's hospital in that first 12 years, just meeting with my neuro people and um, orthopedic people, just checking to see what my progress was. Um, but it wasn't picked up until, um, yeah, when I was 12, when I was getting some pain in my legs, that um, during the tests that they ran, they found that, yeah, I'd lost um, sensory feeling. So Did you had, sorry to interrupt. So you had zero negative impact on your body until 12. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, that was the start of it. Yeah, okay. So from the age of 12, that's when things really start to change. Yeah, right. So, yeah, and okay. ironically, my, um, the changes that I've um, experienced have been in eight to 10 year cycles. Um, so when I go through this timeline, you'll understand what I mean. So, um, so at the age of 12, they did what they call a laminectomy which is open up the back and untether the spinal cord, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so they performed that operation then. Um, I, yeah, life went on, um, the pain went away and I got through until I was 20 years of age and I slowly developed what they call a drop foot on my left. So over a period of time, my foot just started to drop and I couldn't control pulling it back up at 90 degrees. Um, and it wasn't something that just happened overnight. It was a really gradual thing. So. Um, I learned to, comp to walk by compensating for that by just lifting my foot up because I couldn't heal toe properly um, until people sort of noticed that. And then when I went to saw the neuro people again, they said, well, obviously something's going on here. So they did um, another uh, MRI and found the spinal cord had become tethered again. Mm -hmm. So they did a laminectomy at 20, free up the, top of the spinal cord. It didn't fix the drop foot, that remained. So the muscle wastage there had already occurred. So. Um, so I started wearing a, what they call an AFO, which is an orthotic device that goes into your, into the shoe and holds my foot at 90 degrees. So I could, so, cause I was still walking at that point. Um, I was fine then, um, at this, at that stage, I'd finished all my schooling. I started my career as a motor mechanic. Were so, you driving? Sorry. Were you driving? Uh, yes. Yep. Manuals? Manuals? Driving, using my feet. Yep. Normal yep. pedals. Yep. Yeah, driving a manual car as well with a, with a clutch. Could do both. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Drove both. Yep. Did you start driving at 16? And was that was there any kind of special thing around that or just standard kind of, you know, part of the normal everyone else no. getting a license? It was normal. It was normal. So yeah. yeah. Because the symptoms really didn't kick in until I was 20. So and I got my license right on 18. So um, I still had full mobility at that stage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't have to 
not worry about um, yeah, any devices as such. So, all right. So what happened um, then? So you're 20, you're 20, and where do we go to from there? At 28, then the right foot started to drop. Mm -hmm. So same deal again. Um, so eight years on from the last one, uh, the right foot was affected. Same thing, did an MRI, found a spinal cord that again, and um, did another laminectomy and um, yeah, freed up that spinal cord. And um, then yeah, I continued on. I started in wearing, wearing an AFO on the right as well. So I was wearing two. So, okay. so, the, so the, 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 20, the 28 year old laminectomy didn't fix the foot drop then. So you, you still had the, the AFO on the right at that point, yeah? Yep. Yep. And you and you were driving with an AFO on the pedals yep. at, at that point. I was. Yeah. Yep. So I've, even still today, I've still got the ability to push push my foot forward. Mm -hmm. I just can't pull it up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what I did was um, with regards to the car was, and Ali, you'd be well um, aware of this, that in most situations the accelerator is slightly lower than the brake pedal. Mm -hmm. You've got to lift your foot up to reach it. So I padded out the accelerator pedal. Mm -hmm. So it was at the same level as the brake. That way I could just um, go straight across from one side to the other. So, but I still had full movement that way. The only movement I didn't have was being able to pull my foot back. But with the AFO supporting it, I could still push forward. This is after 28? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then what about your job as the mechanic? Was that being affected as well? Yeah, look, it's, it's time and it was, it was harder on the tools. So I got off the tools and went into um, various sales roles um, in the automotive industry um, and spent my whole life, my working life in the automotive industry up until eight years ago. So, so you're always um, kind of into cars then? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a car fanatic fan. So, yeah, I love technical stuff. So, yeah, I'm all over that. So, yeah. So yeah, I didn't want to move out of the industry. So whilst I couldn't, uh, you know, work on the tools anymore, I went into yeah various sales roles. Um, like I said, and did that up until eight years ago. So, okay. So then, from twenty eight onwards, um, did, you said you were moving in eight to ten year cycles. Was that again similar kind of thing? Yeah, sure was. So mid thirties, um, the bladder gave out. So um, that stopped functioning properly. So yeah, I had to start uh, doing other things to um, yeah to avoid. So, and that started at mid thirties and yeah, I still do that today. So, yeah, um, okay. so no, no more surgery though, because um, after now having four laminectomies, there's that much scar tissue there. As my neurosurgeon said, I don't know what I'm really cutting through and where your nerves are. Um, it's just the risk is too, um, too great. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, mid thirties was, um, was the bladder. Then mid forties was when the mobility really started to be affected. So, because um, I was still walking through that whole period. Um, mind you, my walking was uh, deteriorating and I was walking with a real um, limp. So my gait wasn't, uh, wasn't great at all. And in doing that, I actually wore out my right hip um, and I had to have a total hip replacement uh, in 2009. So, um, and again, it was just getting harder and harder to walk. I couldn't stand for long periods. And that was my turning point then to, to go to a wheelchair um, and it was at the same time then that um, I also went to hand controls in the car. Yeah. Okay. So that was what, like about twelve years ago. Yeah. Correct. But you had a you had a good twelve twelve year stint or something like that where you were driving with your AFO mm. um, on the accelerator and the brake. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Through that period, did you have to do anything about your license? 
through you're in victoria so the vic roads yep. aspect of it all a little bit different to rms in uh, new south wales where ellie is and um, department of transport here in south australia what were the requirements with vic roads through that journey um so it was interesting it was during that period where you could take your car to a converter and have it converted um, and they could do that without having seen whether you've been to vic roads or had your license tested or done any of that um, so it was really the onus was on the uh, the driver then to to do that sort of thing. Those that's changed dramatically now with NDIS being involved. Um, I can't really talk on behalf of TAC what the situation was there for people like myself, but certainly for NDIS um, and now that you've got OTs involved, yeah, there's a um, a process to go through to drive with um, yeah with uh, hand controls. So, but did you so, have to go through any processes? I did. So um, initially when I went straight to the Monarchs, um, I had those put in and was driving with those. It wasn't until then I changed those to e-radials to an electronic version of the um, Monarchs. Mm -hmm. And obviously I was going for NDIS funding to do that. And this was a really weird experience because the um, OT that I was using, she obviously did the right thing in dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Um, and uh, not only did I have to go for driving lessons, I had to sit my license again. Mm. Now, <laughs> even though I had been driving with sort of Monarchs up until then um, for a couple of years, it was then when I changed to e-radials that she said, well, although you've been driving with Monarchs, um, I need to see you driving with um, this new version of that. Mm -hmm. so. That's interesting. Is that just to interject a little bit? Because I'm in, um, I'm, as we said, I'm in New South Wales and there is... Um, Sort of a bit of a, I don't know, a little bit of controversy at the moment with a similar situation where New South Wales government is having a tussle with the industry. Um, so they're they're turning around and saying, yeah, if you change your hand controls or if you get funding or whatever, you need to get this assessment. And then um, then there are people that are like yourself that have been right driving their whole lives. There's a bit of a pushback from them saying, well, we've been doing this our whole lives. This is kind of a bit derogatory. And um, I guess, how did you feel about that aspect of it? What yeah, look, I was a bit, yeah, like I said, I was a bit taken back by it. Um, and I must admit, you know, from the age of 18 when I first got my license to then sort of mid 40s, having to reset it again. Um, also, I didn't have any concerns about it, but it was more just um, within that week, I did a, a lesson on the Monday, the Wednesday, and then I set my license on the Friday. Um, and the, the lesson was with an actual um, driving instructor. Mm -hmm. um, so he was doing it to the letter of the law, as you would expect. Um, so it was, um, we, were, we ran out of all times at three in the afternoon when school crossings were out. So yeah. it was, you know, make sure you drop down to 40 Ks and doing all the right things. And he, he took me into a shopping center car park and I had to park the car and, and whatnot. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, did all that, um, yeah, passed it, yeah, first go. So yeah. there wasn't an issue there, but there was a bit of a, a weird experience having to do it again after all this time. Especially yeah, yeah. seeing you'd already been driving with them for, well, with hand controls for quite a long time, but it just, wasn't a process for you to actually have that as a restriction on your license at that point, at any point up until that point. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Unreal. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly, uh, we're having a bit of an issue right now in South Australia where the department of transport here have formalized that portable hand controls are no longer, um, an appropriate, mode of using hand controls and there's a whole series of clients that with spinal cord injuries that have purchased portable hand controls and it's 
uh, they're having to now go through exactly what you described, reassessments and so forth too. Um, and they've been driving with hand controls for years and years and years and, and even portable hand controls. So there's a big thing happening at the moment and it'll be the same for many people as, as the departments of transport, the Vic Roads, RMS, uh, whatever it is in the state that you are, are catch up with technology and yeah. change their requirements based on technology and, and how the area is advancing. Yeah. Sure. And also with NDIS, you're going to find there's a lot more um, of these products out and available and, mm -hmm. and on the roads. So the governments now need to pay a bit more attention to it and, and ask a lot more questions. So that's just what it is then and figure out how to deal with it so everybody's safe. So, and I guess on that note of the NDIS, with the pre-NDIS days, Brian, um, in terms of getting to those next levels where you needed those aids or um, or what, what whatever it was, what was the kind of support that you needed at that time and got or from a both funding point of view and, and a infrastructure point of view? Like, I guess nowadays it seems to be pretty standard with NDIS, there's a process, you go and see OTs, you go and see modifiers, et cetera, et cetera, and go through paperwork. But was that a bit harder to wade through or, or like how did it work out at those times? Uh, look, I found that um, my experience was pretty good with it um, in that I suppose because I can uh, articulate fairly well and represent myself. So I still self-manage my, my NDIS plan even today um, and I'm four years in. So um, look, I sort of flew under the radar because I was still working full time and, and funding a lot of the stuff over the during that journey myself with AFOs that I needed and things like that. Um, I never went to sweat for that money. Um, when I had to go to catheters, they, they helped me a bit with that, but that was about all. So look, for me, NDIS has been a fantastic um, thing. So um, it's provided me funding to you know, upgrade my hand controls. Also put a, um, a Carol 40 to the back of my car as well to lift my chair in and out um, and do things of that nature, you know, sports chairs, because I play wheelchair sports. Um, so from that point of view, um, yeah, it was pretty good. So in my very first year on NDIS, um, there was quite a little, a lot of AT stuff that I did need as far as vehicle mod work was concerned, you know, a wheelchair, a sports chair, commode, all the usual things. Um, and I went pretty hard at it in that first year. Um, like many people experienced then or still experiencing today, it is a fairly, can be a fairly lengthy process. Um, I did engage my local member um, to advocate on my behalf to NDIA because I thought just things were just taking too long in that first year. Um, once I got involved, yeah, things turned around pretty quickly. And to NDIA's credit and also you know, to the credit of my um, local member, I got all the AT that I asked for in the very first year. So that set me up then and has set me up for, um, for quite a while. So in, in terms of getting the AT, so with NDIS, there's a process where you need to see, you know, allied health professionals and get confirmation that that is the right product, et cetera, et cetera. So do you think that like pre-NDIS, as you said, you didn't have that kind of support. You had to just buy it yourself or you, or you chose to buy it yourself because you were in that better position. Um, do you think that you might have made better or worse choices back then because you didn't have that second opinion from the OT? Like, did you go to an OT, for example, pre-NDIS and say, hey, I'm thinking about this kind of aid, what do you think? Or, or did you just figure it out yourself? How, what was the difference there? No, I just did it myself. Yeah? So, yeah, 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 just, okay. um, and I suppose that's where the technical know-how of, you know, my mechanical line works came into play as well, of knowing sort of what equipment I did need. Um, and, you know, I knew with my journey that I'd eventually end up in a wheelchair, um, just the way it was 
panning out. Um, so I was sort of preparing for that. So it was, I already had that mindset. Um, so I suppose I'd already done a lot of the due diligence, so to speak, um, to work out then what I was going to need for the future. So, yeah, okay. and, I, and I think that's where my journey is a lot different to someone who has a spinal cord injury where in a matter of seconds, their, their world is turned upside down. Um, and all of a sudden they've got to get, got to get their head around. Well, am I still going to be able to drive? Can I still work? How am I going to travel? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? So, um, whereas I had probably time on my side to um, evaluate all that stuff. But then when you said you went through those kind of eight to 10 year points, um, did you find that there were a struggle to get through those, those periods because it was, you were learning new stuff? Like what was that period like? Uh, yeah, it was tough because um, during my whole life, I really um, sort of pushed the boundaries on you know, where I continued to walk um, right up until the death knock really until I had to go into a wheelchair and I just didn't want to give up. So, um, and I think you know, a lot of people with disability are fairly strong-minded like that in that they know what the challenges are ahead of them. And uh, if you've got that inner strength to try and overcome that, um, yeah, it's... But look, I'll admit, um, Ali, it was tough, um, particularly going into a wheelchair, just the... Uh, um, like I had a young son at that time. He was only 12. Um, and I was worried about sort of what he was going to... What he would think, what his friends would think. And there's always, always those first times, um, and I'm referring obviously now to the wheelchair, where your family sees you for the first time, your friends see you for the first time. They've only known you walking. And then yeah. all of a sudden you're in this uh, wheelchair, which was my, my decision, my choice to make that. Um, and obviously, you know, I've been married, I've been married a long time. So obviously I spoke to my wife about it and how it was going to affect her. Um, but yeah, there, so there was that, there was that mental um, anguish, I suppose, one of a better word. Um, to make those decisions to, you know, yeah, start using a wheelchair, start using hand controls, you know. And I didn't want to think that I was giving into my disability, but I think I got to a stage where I just had to accept where I was and that I needed to make these changes. So well, I've got yeah. a follow-up question for that. Did those changes then change your life? Did your world open up or did it close down or or was it just a gradual change? What happened when you actually took that big step to wheelchair, hand controls, those type of things? It was a major change forward. It was a positive change forward. Yeah, right. Because all those things that I had to, that I gave up doing, which was playing sports and that, um, obviously because I wasn't mobile to do that, I then took it up in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that was the best thing for my mind was to have done that. Um, as far as driving was concerned, you know, it was getting more challenging towards the end um, because when I even had the test, to decipher whether I needed to go to hand controls, where they sit you in front of that panel with all the lights and all that, and you've got pedals underneath the desk, and they test your reaction time to go from the accelerator to the brake. They said to me, look, you're still borderline. I said, that's enough for me to know that it's time. I said, I don't want to push the boundary anymore. I'm, I'm happy to go to hand controls now at this point. So um, I it's knew a good, that. Um, I mean, one thing which I will uh praise you for brian because i know you and we've spoken many times uh, offline here as well is you have a very good radar on, on making these kind of decisions uh, you know whenever we've spoken about it you seem to be pretty switched on about that stuff i actually think you could be a good um coach or a leader for some people in that respect in helping them make the decisions because um it's a very difficult thing to make the decision and you seem to be armed with uh, good processes to make those decisions 
No, I appreciate that, Ali. Look, um, and I'm sure that helps my work here at Mobility Plus um, in that, you know, I'm dealing with people every day of the week um, with either, you know, congenital health issues or disabilities, by spinal cord injury, whatever the case may be. Um, and you're right, we do become a bit of a coach and mentor to them because if it's a, you know, if it's a new spinal cord injury and then we're meeting them at Talbot at the rehabilitation hospital, um, they're still in a head spin about, you know, what life looks like for them going forward. Whereas I can share obviously my experience and, and let them know that, you know, I still drive, I still work full time, I still holiday. You know, we've got a ski boat that we take away um, for family holidays. Um, I drive that, um, I don't get behind it anymore, but um, yeah, but my wife and son and all the family and friends do all that part of it, but I still drive it. And, I still participate in that way, so. Yeah, so that's, I mean, um, boats, boats are pure hand controls anyway, you know, so it's good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned Mobility Plus, so let's have a, let's have a chat there. Let's t give your um, business a plug there. What, what, what is Mobility Plus for the people that aren't in Melbourne? Talk to us about uh, Mobility Plus or for the people who are in Victoria. Let us sure. know what you're doing there. All right, so Mobility Plus is a 40-year-old family business. Um, it's started by Danny O'Neill, um, yeah, 40 years ago. Um, he's in a chair himself after a, um, a motorbike accident um, and started building his own wheelchairs um, in his garage. And like most small business stories, starting his garage, then a bigger factory, then a much bigger factory, then a bigger factory. And here we are 40 years on, um, and our core business is still manufacturing custom um, what we call day chairs, which are wheelchairs that people sit in every day, and also sports chairs as well. So we have an engineering facility here um, at our um, premises here in Fairfield in, uh, in Victoria. And uh, yeah, we custom build Australian-made, handmade wheelchairs. Yeah. So, um, and, um, and, and I think we're, uh, uh, what's his, um, Danny was really big in the wheelchair basketball scene as well. I remember you were saying, because we also meant, um, had a Olympic wheelchair basketball on a couple of, um, she was an old school lady as well, Lisa Tesh, she's a politician. And um, she knew Danny actually um, from back in the day, because she was really promoting Australian made wheelchairs as well. Yep. Um, and we were, we were sort of mentioned about Danny and she said, yeah, because I remember you were saying he was part of the kind of origins of it. And she was part of the origins of the, um, of the kind of the, the female um, yeah. wheelchair basketball. And they, they sort of knew okay. each other and, and all of that so um so yeah it's um and i know you guys do like all sorts of stuff like vehicle mods and, and resell a lot of other products as well so um a bit of an all-round kind of facility one-stop shop type thing in melbourne yeah it is very much early in that time yeah the business then evolved to um, yeah doing vehicle mod work um, um from all aspects of that to um yeah we do, we've got a fairly big pediatric range as well as i mentioned the sports side of it we do some recreational equipment in um, modified custom um, push bikes and trikes and things like that. So yeah, the uh, the range is quite diverse. Well, speaking speaking of the product, one thing I wanted to just quickly go back to with the hand controls that you were talking about. When you so the Monarch hand controls, just to clarify, um, you were using them first. They're just a standard push pull. Is that right? Like a manual push pull style thing? Uh, not push pull so much, but um, push. Sorry, yeah, push to break. And pad down to uh, to accelerate. That's the monarch. Yeah. And then so and radial, then um, radial radial for people that are listening, they, they might know it as a push radial hand control. Yeah. Correct. And then and then um, you said you've got now a radial e radial. Is that the PME one? Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 And um, so how did you go about? I guess 
selecting that product? What's the process that you go through? And, um, and what would you, I guess, recommend to your clients that come there um, when they're thinking about the different hand controls and products? Um, it's really just assessing um, both their physical um, abilities and capabilities and also cognitively um, what works best for them as well. Um, so obviously something that's not too complicated. Also, if they've previously been using a particular um, um, uh, vehicle, style, yep, um, that they may want to stay with that same style, which was my reason for going still with the e-radial because I was just so used to that push down for brake and pad down to um, accelerate, that, but I just wanted an, an electronic version of that. So I stayed with that. Um, but as you will know, you know, there's a dozen or more different um, um, yeah, styles out there that, um, that you can go with um, from using your left hand to using your right hand to something that's just in the palm of your hand um, to something that's mounted on the steering wheel itself. Um, it just comes, again, comes back to the individual's um, physical um, needs and uh, cognitively what they can um, manage as well. So, did you sort of have it predetermined in your mind that that's what you wanted or did you... Um, did you try a couple of different things as well when you were back on the market for it? Or did you go, you know what, I just want the electronic version of that. I know what I'm used to. No, I did try a, few, a couple of different options um, because in the vehicles we've got here at Mobility Plus, they're fitted out with a couple of different um, um, options. One's a QB one, which is just a thumb operated one. Um, we also had another style, which was like a motorbike accelerator. So a twist grip. Um, I had a try of that. Um, what else did I try? Yeah, there was one or two others I had to look at as well, but um, yeah, I kept coming back to yeah, the Arado yeah. that, that worked just well for me. Yeah, one thing which is mentioned, you, you, yeah, sorry, one thing which is mentioned in a lot of the other people that we've spoken about with the hand controls is you tend to, other senses tend to kick in as well and start to build up over time. So, um, so like you, you may be, you, you, like once you get used to one particular style, the other senses of your body have also become used to that particular style and you may not realize that. So, so it becomes very difficult to retrain the entire thing. So um, if you need to. Correct. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. So yeah. at Mobility Plus there as well, so you're doing the custom wheelchair. So you're doing fitting of bits and pieces for cars as well? Yep. So I'm not personally involved with that. My role here is um, national sales. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got a team underneath me that um, look after various product groups. Um, and we've got Glenn here who um, oversees um, the vehicle modification division. So, and, how, and how big do you go with the vehicle modifications so people can learn more about it? Is it uh, installation of hand controls, which you've spoken about, but ramps, vans, cut floors? How far does it go there at Mobility Plus? Yeah, we don't lower floors. Um, we haven't um, gone to that stage. We do the rear tub um, conversions with Caddy and uh, things of that nature, um, but not a full van fit out where you're lowering the floor by, you know, uh, five inches or whatever the case may be. So we tend to work more with vehicles that have already got that um, floor to ceiling height rig that we need to either put a, um, a tourney seat into or a, or a six-way seat into or, or something like that. So um, F6 lifts we do quite a lot of. Um, so we do quite a lot of lifts into vans. Um, uh, we do a lot of Carolyn 40s, which is a device that goes in the rear of the vehicle and will lift up um, a piece of equipment. So in my case, it's um, my wheelchair that it lifts up. Because I can still stand and I can walk around to the driver's door. That was going to be wheelchair... my next question. Like, yeah, so so you've, I... got, you've been talking about wheelchair and hand controls. 
it doesn't mean that you need to load the wheelchair across your body for every case. So if in your case, you're walking to the rear of the car? Yep, so I'm very fortunate in that um, I'm still what they call a standing para. So I can step, um, stand out of my wheelchair and um, I was lifting it in and out for a number of years there, but um, as I'm getting older, the, uh, the muscles and that aren't um, what they used to be. So hence why I went to the Carolee 40 and, uh, and put that into the back of my um, Commodore wagon. So, so Brian, um, how do you open your boot? Uh, while I'm still sitting in the wheelchair, I just uh, reach out to the latch, mm -hmm. open it up. So unfortunately with the Commodore um, uh, wagons, they don't come standard with um, uh, auto boot openers, but you can get the, um, yeah. The um, the aftermarket version. So yep. have you? So you haven't got the aftermarket version? No, don't, at this point. No. So yeah. And then do you um, use the little rails across the top of the car to help you with your balance? Back I to used to the... use a walking stick, so yep. I balance myself with a walking stick, and then I'll and then my left hand will be just on the car itself, like holding onto the, the back door handle, and until I get to the front, or mm -hmm. as you said, up onto the top uh, roof rack area. So. Yep. No, it's, it's, it's good to hear. And that's why we ask for, for other people, when they're listening to this, they might be thinking about their own function. So yeah, all of those type of scenarios are, are plausible. Um, if you've got that ability to stand and, and mobilize, um, we've actually had another client actually put a rail with, with um, roof bars, so roof racks, and then yep. we've attached a bar to that to actually help him um, with his balance moving down yep. the side of the down the side of the car, so there's lots of things to explore there if you've got partial uh, walking mobility. Sure, and I, I not only use the um, the car lift to get my wheelchair, and I also use it to get. I've got a what we call a tri ride power assist device, yep. and that fits on the very front of my manual wheelchair and turns into a motorbike for want of a better word. Yep. And I'll use the car lift um, to lift that in and out as well. Yeah. So. Um, and I can do that while I'm sitting in my wheelchair. I can pull up to the back of my car. Um, just, yeah, while I'm still sitting in the wheelchair, I can lower the um, the, um, the cable down, attach it to the tri ride and lift it up while I'm still sitting in the wheelchair. Yep. So it's, it can be used for a number of different devices. So and that's a, that's a Commodore wagon you've got? Yeah, it is. Like, yeah, the, the yeah, Holden wagon. Yeah, yep. they, they were, they've been a fantastic car and um, we, we worry about the future in regards to station wagons uh, for, for people in uh, that need that style of car, because there's reducing number of station wagons uh, on the market nowadays. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and the Commodore wagon has, seems to be a bloody good car for our disability um, industry. So many products can go in and out of it really, really easily. Um, we've yep. we've had a lot of success with a lot of products with that with those cars. So yeah, it is a bit of a shame that they're going, but um, but yeah. Yeah, right. but that's, so, um, that's also that's the beauty of the car lift too is that I'm, I'm able to transfer that then from this vehicle to the next one. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, 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 yeah. We, and I guess that's in general we've mentioned it before. A lot of the good things about um, not cutting your vehicle when you modify is that um, you can take those products with you from vehicle to vehicle, and then also it could be easier to get funding or justify it on a, maybe an older car if you can justify that, hey, I can take this with me um, and the car is not going to hold it back type thing. So we always recommend that as well. Sure. Now, Brian, I've got one more question from an OT point of view. Do you use a spinner knob? Yes, I do. Yep. On the left-hand side of the steering wheel? Yes, it is. Yep. yep. And where do you place your spinner knob? Is it uh, up at that nine o'clock, 10 o'clock region or a little bit higher up at 11 o'clock? If you think of your steering wheel as a clock, yeah. whereabouts do you place your spinner knob? It'd be at 10. At 10? So, yep. Yeah. 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 
So, so uh, it is a it's an OT um, thing that we we discuss a lot of, and and we know there's there's a bunch of clients out there that um, prefer not to have a spinner knob on there. So uh, it's good to hear that you do have one on there. Yeah, and, um, my my personal choice is to is to use it, particularly for tight turns, um, for getting in and out of car spots and uh, and things like that, where you just need to be really able to turn that wheel fairly quickly, or if it's a fairly sharp left hand turn that you're doing, um, I just feel I've got more control over the uh, the steering wheel rather than just sort of palming it using the palm of my hand to mm -hmm. to spin it around. Yeah, okay. Right sounds on. good. That sounds well, pretty good. Yeah, I think you might have to uh, start wrapping it up, eh? Yeah. Sure. Well, Brian, we've got one question that we ask everybody uh, at the end of each of our interviews. And, you know, cars get us from A to B. And we've explored a lot about how a car is important to you and, and your license journey and so forth. But what's one thing that you've used your car that might be a little bit unique? What have you used your car that might be a little bit unique or something that other people don't know? What's What do you use your vehicle for that is more than getting from A to B? Um, I suppose the recreational side of it, of um, as I mentioned, of having a boat and being able to tow that um, behind the car to get to family holidays and things like that. Um, obviously, I use it a lot not only for to commute to and from for work, but also to get my to get my sport uh, for sports as well. So um, I play three different wheelchair sports, and uh, I'm able to get um, everything in the back of the car that I need to to yeah to, to get to those sporting events. So, yeah, right. so what, what do you play, Brian? We, we've mentioned it lots of times. What, what sports do you play? Uh, wheelchair, um, tennis, badminton, and I'm involved in uh, wheelchair AFL as well. So um, yeah, I've played for a number of years, but I've uh, stopped playing and I've taken on a coaching role um, for the Collingwood Club. So, I've heard, I don't, is AFL the same? I was speaking to a wheelchair rugby guy and they sound pretty aggressive. They throw you out of the chair and is the same with AFL? Yeah, it is fairly, um, yeah, it's fairly... Contact maybe not as aggressive as um, as um, uh, rugby, um, but um, yeah, it's still a fairly contact sport. So yeah, yeah, they're, it's, they're throwing it's, people out of chairs left, right, and centre over at rugby, and I'm yeah. just like, wow. <laughs> so um, so yeah, it's uh, full on. That sounds really good, and um, and yeah, thanks very much, Brian. That's that's been really good, really awesome to talk to you. My yeah. pleasure, Ali. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, really appreciate it. Um, as we wind up this uh, episode, um, Brian went through lots of trials, but as we say in every episode, if you've got any queries about what you can do and what will work for you, make sure you do get in contact with your local OT or mobility dealer, such as Mobility Plus, and set yourself up with the trials because as we say, trials really do put you in the driver's seat. And uh, on that note, thanks very much, Brian, and we'll all see you all in the next podcast. All right. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you. Right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Ali. All right, everybody. That wraps up the session with Brian. Brian um, was a fantastic guy. And what we're doing now is based on feedback, we're doing our little wrap up sessions at the end of the podcast. So it all stays together as one. So that's what we're moving into now is our little wrap up session of our discussion with Brian, where Ali and I dig a little bit deeper and go into the little bit of the backstory from a technical point of view. What did you think, Ellie, of that uh, interview with Brian? I thought it was awesome. I really like um, Brian and I love the way that he processes everything, the way that he explains everything. Um, as he said, I think the fact that 
he was born with the condition um, maybe makes it a little bit easier um, from a mental point of view to process these things. Um, uh, but yeah, look, I just, one of the big key things was um, really how he made those decisions at any, at those various points in life, you know, um, it wouldn't have been easy. And as he said, it was mental anguish because to me at each point of those 10, eight to 10 year cycles, it's almost like he would have been an, a new disability almost, you know? Um, yeah. So you would have to still process that. But the way he processes thing, I really encourage people to, um, to listen to that and really understand that because he's a very sensible person. He's processing things in a very, very sensible manner, um, but he's still going through and living through these things in life, you know? So I thought it was really good. Yeah, he's, um, he's mentioned that he's got spina bifida, but it was an evolving process as he has growth spurts and his scar tissue changed and so forth. Reminded me very much of the interview that we did with Nev and that the MS story that he had with that degenerative condition. I don't know. We don't know if Brian's condition is going to change too much into the future. I'm not sure if he knows whether it's going to change too much into the future or not. But that evolving story compared to having an injury like a spinal cord injury and then the next day it's different. This is an evolution um, of, of function and, and a change in function as times goes by. And I think it really is a, an interesting story and an interesting thing to explore more with clients in regards to how do they know when it's time to move on to the next product or the next thing. And um, Brian was saying that he, he could feel that those, those pedals were getting to a stage where it, he, he changed the pedal built the pedal out, which is something that can be done. Uh, it, it should go through engineering and, and making sure that that's a safe build out um, and consideration for other people that drive the car, but building out that accelerator. So it's the same level as the brake pedal. Uh, but when it was at time then to move from the AFO and pedal, pedals being built out to hand controls. And I think the, uh, you know, we can do assessments and so forth. And he said he had a, an assessment to say that his, his foot was borderline, you know, the reaction times were borderline, but he was in a mental mindset to say, I don't want to be borderline. I want to be excellent and uh, made the decision to, to move over to hand controls. Yeah. I thought that was really, um, really, uh, really good. And, and very, I guess, reminded me of what Neville was saying. It was, he also had said a similar kind of thing that he probably could have been okay. Um, but just that element of risk to the community uh, just uh, kind of was, they, they felt a higher responsibility. And that, that was also, I guess, similar kind of message I got from Brian as well. He didn't want to take those risks, even though they said, yeah, look, you should be okay. Um, and that, I guess, also, which is something that we've covered a little bit, which is more and more of what's going to be, I think, the next discussion over the next probably five to 10 years is, is those those lines of what's going to be okay and what's not going to be okay is going to be tested um, by the governments um, and and yeah like it, and it does require us to take those um, responsibilities for ourselves as well and and speak up when we don't think it's okay or we do think it's okay because it does seem to be with all this stuff on highlight uh, as we've discussed in a few of the episodes um, yeah it is it is like 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 he said the person tested him and goes oh yeah you should be okay. Um, but I think nowadays you'll find the criteria might start to get a lot more stringent over time, you know? Yeah, I, I think that'll be the case as well. I think 
we're always going to push those boundaries with new technology that comes in, uh, new training mechanisms, new training, uh, rehab sessions and so forth. Um, you know, even like he said, spina bifida isn't as uh, common nowadays because of the folate that the, the mums are taking in the first trimester. I mean, that's, that's wonderful news um, in regards to an evolution of a condition. But even with strokes, as an example, there's many more people surviving strokes with complex needs uh, based upon that survival compared to many years ago, people would have passed away. Um, it's going to be an evolving space as medic, medical uh, practices get better, rehab gets better, and also there's more technology on the market. Those boundaries are going to continue to get pushed. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that, on that technology, one thing I'll mention, I guess, highlight, which I thought Brian really, really does, um, I guess, represent well, is the, the usage of aids and technology to ensure that you can then do other things in your life and have longevity in your body. So, mm. so when you heard Brian explain, I guess, the, the various aids he needed and the points in time in which he got those aids and, and decided to get them and so on. And I've, I know that I've spoken to him about other stuff, like he's got a smart drive on his wheelchair that he doesn't really, I guess a lot of people would may consider he wouldn't need it. But well, when I've asked him about- like front wheel too, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, like that, that, that motorbike front podcast. wheelchair thing he was talking about. Like you could see he's a fairly athletic guy and he does three different types of wheelchair sports. So a lot of people might say, why would you even put that there? And, I, and I've actually asked him that question and his feedback was, well, I get all my physical activity through the sports and I want to do them. So when I'm not doing them, I'm going to save my body from that repetitive action. So, so um, he's very, very considered in that respect in terms of using AIDS. And I think that's a really, really big um, kudos to him and, and something that people could you know, get inspiration from. Well, think about the mental health side of that as well, is that, um, you know, the, the enjoyment, the satisfaction that he gets out of those wheelchair sports. And if he can't do that because he's fatigued from pushing around his chair all day for, for all the work that he has to do to and from clients in and out of hospitals, demonstrating uh, wheelchairs and so forth and, and the sales team and, and managing his team. If he gets to the end of the day and he's, um, shoulders, arms are fatigued and, and he can't play his wheelchair sports, what does that do to his mental health? So yeah, these yeah. additional products to, to help prolong shoulder health are really important from multiple yeah, levels. Yeah. And the last thing which I'll, I'll um, I guess, really highlight was one thing again, Brian mentioned was he's been using a particular type of hand control for, you know, X number of years, at least 10 plus years. Um, I don't know how many clients I've had that have come here that have used that hand control for 10 plus years and their mind is closed to anything else. They yeah. just want the exact same thing. Yeah. And, and Brian ended up with a very similar thing to the exact same thing, but he still went out and tried different things. And I thought that's a big kudos to him that at his age and at, at his kind of um, you know, level where a lot of people, most, to be honest, overwhelmingly most clients that would present to our workshop like Brian, I can guarantee you most of them, the first thing that would say is give me what I had, you know, yeah. they wouldn't even entertain trying something different. So yeah. it goes back to the big theme of what we try and push is keep trialing things. And, and this guy here is a great, um, I guess, inspiration to that because a testament to that, because he's been using one particular control the whole time. Um, and I guess one thing is he works in the industry, so he can tell the, 
he can see the, the every day how much these things are better and, and can be different and evolve, you know. So it's great that he got back out there and just started trying different things. Yeah, I yeah, absolutely, hundred percent agree. And try trials. I mean, we we spruik it every week. We talk about it every week. Trials really do put you in the best uh, position. So get out there and trial things. Um, make sure that you're you're following that your state law in regards to. Um, what's required by the Department of Transport, Vic Roads, RMS, um, Queensland Department of Transport, wherever you are around Australia, make sure that you do understand what the licensing requirements are. Not sure how he went for so long without having anything on his license, whether that's just an evolution of of the uh, Vic Roads over there um, or whether he slipped under the radar. Uh, we're not to know, but I'm, I'm glad that he's, um, yeah, it's just an evolution. Yeah, I think it is. It's, it's the same in New South Wales. There's a lot of people here that just got their license back in the old days. There's nothing written on there. It's nothing just, written. No, yeah, no, that's right. And no one really knew how to process it, you know. And then, and as we've discussed, they're just trying to figure that out now. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So many clients of ours come into for an assessment, and and yeah, their license is is suspect to to what they've actually been driving with over the last little bit so so make sure you keep that up to date there is actually in south australia i can talk about that there is actually um something when you go to sit for your license or when you fill out your paperwork do you have a medical condition that impacts on driving and it's a yes no box and then you fill in the details after make sure you fill that in when you when you update your license in south australia and i'm pretty sure it's the same in uh, with the rms as well so it is a responsibility of the client, the the person that holds the license to notify the Department of Transport. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. I think that's, that's it. I like that one. Yeah. That was good. And uh, yeah, we maybe we'll catch up with Brian sometime in the future. Yeah, sounds good. All right, guys. Right. Well, until the next time. Yeah. Thanks very much for tuning in. And like we um, say, set yourself up with trials. But if you like this, make sure that you go and like it on our socials or press the like button or the subscribe button on the channel that you're listening to this on. And if you think that it's going to be beneficial for somebody else to, to start listening to, maybe you know somebody that is contemplating hand controls or maybe they need some mobility um, advice for getting out into the community, make sure you share this with them and, and spread the word. All right. Sounds good. See you next week, Ali. All, All right. See bye you bye. next time. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Drive Able podcast with Brad Williams and Ali Akbarian. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate, and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability, or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes, or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.